need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he's entering his Billy Joel phase. It's Andy Greenwald! Chris, I know you're talking about the boys and the character of Huey's classic rock t-shirts, all of which are immaculately pressed despite living in the basement of, I believe, a Haitian drug lord's opium den. But he wore a Fleetwood Mac shirt this week, something I would do. So I don't want to tell you how to do your job. I'm just saying... Hugh and I have never been more aligned. I feel like Fleetwood Mac is having a moment. I feel like the boys is having a moment. We're also going to talk a little bit about some Disney shakeup stuff and maybe a little Good Lord Bird. So we'll get into the watch in just a second. Let's just take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Greenwald, we're back. What's up, man? Monday in America. And we have a special guest today, too. I forgot to mention Eric Kripke, the showrunner of The Boys, is going to be joining us today. You have an interview with him. After we get done chatting about the comings and goings and movings and shakings of the entertainment industry and the pop culture landscape, it's great to see you, as always. How was your weekend? Oh, great. You know, for some people, the weekend's still going. I believe it's Indigenous Peoples Day in America and uh, Columbus Day in front of the Gabagool Pork Store. Um, shouts to our friends, Chris Multisanti and the rest of the crew, Polly Walnuts. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, I do think that when, when I, and listen, Chris, you know me, I'm a, I'm an optimist at heart about everything. And I think that, uh, when we do emerge from our slow boring national nightmare, um, I think we got to come up with new terms because I think that for a while, when we see each other, you and I, or anyone, you know, hi, how are you? Better comedians than than you or I have made the joke that like it's kind of meaningless. Uh-huh. But particularly now, asking people how they are or how their weekend was feels loaded, you know? There's yeah, no, man. There's, there's no answer. Yeah. We, we want to express concern for each other and like, you know, how are you doing? Are I, feel you like, to- I feel like your responses to me asking you how your weekend's going have gotten from less animated to slightly Leak. grim. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I think that's to be expected, you know? The seasons are changing and there's a lot sure. going on. Also, I think the issue is that the thing that we talk about the most, and we've done this for the last couple of shows, and I don't want to become a broken record, is, you know, I, I think the news that we have been talking about has been pointing in the wrong direction, um, both from terms of the cancellations of shows that we like quite a bit, of the, you know, not so sure that the the faucet of TV and movies is going to be flowing very freely going forward. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, you see certain things like I, I saw today uh, that Ewan McGregor had said that like they were going to start shooting 
the Obi-Wan show in March. You know, I, I know that people are making stuff, but it does seem like it's a, it's, it's a lot more of a grind than it was. And I don't think it's getting any easier, but you know, we try to, we're trying to look on the bright side here. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 to that point, and I think I've probably said it in bits and pieces in previous shows, but, you know, it's come to my attention that even our most dedicated listeners, not all of them listen to every episode, even though they might miss bits of the story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we should probably use that pre-roll thing that we're doing for, like, recaps. Oh, like, like re- I, recaps of the watch? We've never talked about this, but we've been doing this for now. It's almost nine years we've been doing yeah. this podcast, and I have considered this a serialized long form drama <laughs> where arcs you know come and go and basically it's never once occurred to me that someone might miss a comment in minute 47 of a podcast that's advertised as a, as a in-depth conversation about a trailer you know so <laughs> so let me say it here at the top of a show um, where we're talking about something like the boys it's very popular with a interview with the showrunner stuff's back like mm-hmm. Almost everything has found a way either back into production if it's going or has at least a tentative schedule for when it will resume production. And to Hollywood's great credit, I think things have been proceeding uh, reasonably. I think they've mm-hmm. been proceeding safely. Um, speaking to people, whether they are whether no one's in offices anymore, but whether they, they would be in the development offices or production offices of studios or people who we know who are, who are at work on sets – they're being looked after and they feel reasonably okay about it. But I think the two takeaways from that is it's really hard. It's really expensive, mm-hmm. um, which is why we're seeing a lot of these cancellations. I mean, there are numbers being thrown around. I can't verify them, but numbers being thrown around that just just the PPE protocols alone are adding hundreds of thousands of dollars to the yeah, line of Yeah, I saw 200K. Yeah. Right. And I do think that one of the reasons why we haven't definitively said, you know, Hollywood's back baby is partly because it's to individual unions and studios. Um, great credit, I think, that they've been able to pull this off, kind of like the amazing job the NBA did with the bubble, but it's not centralized. You know what I mean? There, There is no one helping on a larger level. People are scrabbling to put this together and doing their be- the best they can piecemeal. And so I think it the- does not feel like things are better. It just feels like individually the shows are getting back to work. Come shows are, shows are getting back to work. Yeah, I don't mean to cast too dark, uh, too dark a picture of it, but it does feel like the platforms that are delivering these shows are changing in front of our eyes, whether it's um, cable networks going into more of a streaming platform format like AMC, like we talked about with Gangs of London last week and that being available only on AMC+. And now this news today about, I, I, guess, I guess this is where Kaya drops the Iger counter music. That Disney had a little bit of a shakeup, but really what it I think the takeaway from it is that they are very happy with and going all in on Disney Plus more so than they had in the past. Now, Mm -hmm. that could be because Disney Plus is a very successful, very useful tool for for parents and and the childless alike. And that, you know, it's making good stuff that people want to watch and that it's become easily, I think, the most viable Netflix competitor in terms of a streaming platform. But it's also indicative of the fact that uh, there's so much uncertainty surrounding theatrical releases and, in Disney's case, the return of theme parks in any time soon. So a lot of their business, in terms of their diversification, is shrinking. So they're putting a lot more of their eggs in the streaming basket, correct? 
Yeah, I think people could take a look at the story. It was on CNBC. Other outlets have reported on it for the specific details of the reorg and who, what's flowing through whom. But the main takeaway is Disney Plus, sticking with a joke, even though we're talking about a serious business story, is the focus of the company yeah. for the foreseeable future. And frankly, that makes sense. When we were talking about why uh, the Plus was successful in ways, at least initially in ways that some of these other streaming services weren't, one of the things we, we pointed out was that Disney as a company is very, very familiar with being forward-facing, consumer-interacting brands, yes. right? Their they, whole thing they, is, yeah, user experience. They, yes. They host people on boats, they used to. They host people in theme parks, or they used to. The thing about Disney Plus as a launching pad for the company, it's really it's not like they're just trying to compete with the Netflixes. It's because this is what it was all building to. They don't need a middleman anymore to get the content to you. And what's truly freaking out the theaters is that they were the middlemen. Yep. Right? I mean, it was a very, very, very mutually beneficial relationship, the major theater distributors and Disney, because Disney, before any of the other studios, really pivoted almost entirely to a blockbuster model, which meant that these theater chains could count on half their 20 theaters or whatever being booked for large swaths of each year by money-generating machines that would mm -hmm. generate sequels and you know multiple visits to the multiplex by younger people or, or whatever. That worked out really well for everybody. But the longer this goes on and the more people get used to being like, I'll pay 30 bucks for, you know, the, the for I guess Mulan was the last one, but the really big shoot a drop will be if Black Widow goes streaming, I think, sure. right? Right, which they're, that, that, I, I think they are still holding out hope that that won't have to happen. But they did make the announcement that Soul is going to be released on Christmas Day. Is that right? The Pixar movie, yes. Yeah, and 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 I think that as we've been talking about the transition from Iger to, to JPEG, the fact that um, they were a little bit ahead of the curve, like they were steering their most profitable arms, uh, at least in terms of the blockbuster business, um, Lucasfilm and Marvel towards mm -hmm. original content on their streaming platform already means they had a head start on this, but they were. It, you know, intentionally saying, but there will also be movie events. Yeah. Well, this okay, goes so on like this. That's I'm a crucial sure. thing. So when I think of Disney, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about a lot of the stuff that they make just because of my taste. But I do recognize that very few companies in the world that put stuff out eventize them like Disney does. And part, part of me, the, my, my main reaction was, I wonder whether or not they're going to be able to sustain this sense of, of an event, of eventizing things when it comes to streaming. Because one thing that you and I have been talking about, and you and I are dead inside, so it, it, this is to be expected. But you and I, I think, have talked about the flattening that happens on streaming. That yeah. there is a feeling of, oh, I'll catch up with that. At this point, maybe there will be a dead weekend. I'll watch all of Raised by Wolves. Maybe there will be this. I know that there's all this Shit's Creek I could watch on Netflix now, so I'm not necessarily participating in Emmy's night, but maybe I'll start watching. Like, it just is happening on, talk about consumer, on a very, very individual basis. Mm -hmm. We've struggled with this as we're trying to decide, like, well, what shows should we focus on for our listeners? Disney's whole thing is, you know, nine months, 18 months out that this thing is coming. The drumbeat gets louder six months out. The trailers, the songs, the characters showing up at parks, the feeling that you could get this stuff in Disney stores, all of that stuff that's just very physical and very sensitive to the idea of building up to a moment in time that your kids or you will remember for a very long time. Now, they've done a very good job this year in really, really adverse circumstances of sort of trying to recreate that. Hamilton, right? The, the the drumbeat growing louder for Mandalorian, which is like the trailer is great. 
Everybody knows when it's coming. It comes out once a week. This is when you can watch it. This is where you can watch it. Let's start breaking down the pictures and seeing if we can spot different characters. Ooh, did you hear Timothy Oliphant? Where's Boba Fett's clothes? Like on and on and on. But I noticed a comment from a guy, I think his name is Dan Loeb, who's like a, a venture capital guy who's a big shareholder at Disney. And he was saying, I don't want them to do the dividend this year because I want them to take that money and invest it in making more stuff for Disney Plus. That'll be really interesting if Disney becomes, I mean, can you even conceive of a world in which there are like so, so there's so much Star Wars on that we don't even notice? You know what I mean? Well, this is really delicate. And we've seen with what happened with HBO Max that when you, when, when you just stop supporting something that is basically uh, a bubble. And in the case of HBO, it's the idea that the brand of HBO is magical and intellectual and important and special. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of ignore it. It goes away. Right now we're like, what's an HBO original? What's a Max original? And that happens super fast. Yeah, and is this stuff on of, Sunday or is it on Monday? I mean, I, I, I'm able to adjust stuff. to that. Yeah, right. right. And in the case of Disney, everything you're saying, I compl- I wholeheartedly endorse. I mean, they make things events and they are better at it than any other company in the world for good or for ill. If you start poking around in there, if you start dropping the pretense of things being special or important or get in line, you know, or get in line early, get your tickets... I'm not entirely sure what you have. And they've been savvy about this to a degree, and it's a degree we talk about every time this stuff comes up, which is to say that there was a very appropriate and I think smart retrenchment from everything is building to this with Avengers Endgame, right? They very smartly pivoted some of those characters to TV shows. They said, we're going to slow build this next phase and we're not going to get ahead of ourselves and announce stuff. If you look at what has been announced in the detritus of this current cultural moment, we have stuff that's, you know, fan service that could turn into really worthwhile franchises like Black Widow. Mm-hmm. But we also have a lot of sequels that if you poke at them too long, I don't see what the difference is between them and streaming events, such as a Doctor Strange sequel or a Ant-Man 3, uh, or whatever. Or Ant-Man 3 right? Will I watch those? Yeah. Am I actually optimistic that they'll be good? Yes, because they're freed of some of the burdens of delivering chapter 18 in a 25-part story. But at the same time, those are not an Infinity War. And so to me, the most interesting title that they've announced, and we'll also, but one we can't really pass judgment on until A, we see anything from it, but also B, we have a sense of what the larger world looks like when the movie is released, is Eternals. Mm -hmm. Because Eternals, from everything we've read about it and from everything we know about it, feels like, a giant WTF swing in the coolest way, maybe the coolest way they've done, the sort of thing that could either herald a new era of like, this is how we make movies now mm-hmm. and the types of stories we want to tell. Or, yeah, if you squint, this is a little bit related to Spider-Man 3's multiverse with Jamie Foxx. So, you know, maybe watch it on a Tuesday once it's streaming. I'm not sure what the difference is. And it would take smarter people than us on the financial and business planning side, I think, to say what's the what's the plus minus of giving up the big tent in favor of a hugely potentially profitable series of small tents. I don't know, but it does feel like a different business model. Well, I certainly think it'll require an adjustment from, and you're like the person who's really kind of even told me about this, but the fact that those theatrical animated event movies are treated as these, like these are the golden geese, man. Like these are the things that, that keep on giving. And when we were growing up, Disney used to, turn the tap off on us like they would remember like when oh the Cinder- cartoons you mean yeah 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 and when remember when like cinderella would be available for a short time only on video and then they would, would be go like to the vault and and then they would bring it off the shelves so the entire i think 
value proposition of the streaming library is that it is in fact a library and that everything's there. But you were always you were saying there are like these sort of shadow sequels to a bunch of their animated classics that just oh, kind yes. of we don't really talk about those, but they probably like mint money for come, them. Come over. Come over sometime <laughs> if you want to talk about them. Talk, talk about that Mulan 2 that we <laughs> Poca- Pocahontas 2, dude. You won't even believe what she gets up to in um, England. I wish I was kidding. So that you tell me if I'm wrong. I wonder if that kind of thinking is dead because now there is no good or bad side of the tracks for them. It's all on demand. It's all going to be in this one place. Or whether you could see an application of, you know, the further adventures of the Winter Soldier, but not quite as good as any of this stuff. And off of the, you know, like, I wonder whether or not a little bit more of a, uh, like a pr- production line sensibility gets applied to these very treasured brands like marvel and and well, lucasfilm I, I wonder that too and i and again it'll take someone who's smarter about the ways of of business and streaming than us to, to fully comment on this but from my impression from the outside uh is that content libraries are huge value ads but they do not drive new subs necessarily okay and new subs is what all this is based on because new subs i feel gross saying that so subscriptions is what wall street pays attention to and what Wall Street pays attention to is what makes these companies jump or jump how high. Right. And so for parents such as myself, the Disney Plus subscription is a no-brainer because of the library. But for the people that they are still trying to convert, whether they are trying to poach them from Netflix or the Amazon. The undecided or voters? To, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yes, the, the <laughs> shrinking sh- share of the electorate that was big into Jill Stein and Gary Johnson last time. Um they need more needle-moving events like Hamilton or The Mandalorian. And I, can you imagine, like, I, a, uh, in this Pennsylvania diner, a man has been sitting on his $15 a month trying to decide which subscription platform to join? I wish we could live in a world that boring that we could do that story, because it actually would be interesting, particularly now that people have fewer and fewer $15 increments to just I'm hearing out. a lot of good things about but, The Handmaid's Tale, but what do we really know about her? <laughs> Are you talking about the Supreme Court hearings? <laughs> no, I'm talking about like so, this, oh, this sure, guy at a show. diner who's like trying to decide which, yes. I thought you were using coded language for your opening <laughs> statement to the Judiciary Committee. So, yeah. So I, 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 there, I, I think that there, has, there will have to be a changing of the guard in terms of how precious we are about this stuff. And again, I think that having the jump on it made sense. The way that Kevin Feige sold... Sebastian Stan and, and Elizabeth Olsen and on all the actors who are doing Tom Hiddleston who are doing Disney Plus series is he didn't say I need you guys to be the poster children for the cheapening and dilution of our brand he didn't yeah. say that it's what's happening you know it but it's there's also creative reasons for doing it that I'm sure they've all enjoyed the experience and I'm sure they enjoyed the paychecks but it is an attempt to prove that in the stock driven world of all of this Marvel can play at two levels. They could play in the movie level and at the more high-volume TV level. What's interesting about Star Wars to me is that um, it they did a higher-volume movie thing. Yeah. That was the gambit when Disney bought it, and it didn't do great, right? And so now they only have one... They have more movies in development than TV shows that we know about, I think. And Yeah, I think that's I, right. Although they've made a lot of announcements of characters that I think could go both ways characters mm-hmm. that they're like we'll see we'll see like where we where we wind up with the story ideating for this and maybe it's something that we put on on plus and maybe it's something we put in a the theater what is what is, what is bill the undecided voter in latrobe pa think about characters that go both ways 
maybe someone in his family he knows, so he's not as against it on a. I do like the idea that um, Kevin Feige had to like w- like went and saw Sebastian Stan in like a black box theater in Lower East Side where he was making a play with Adam right. Driver's Marriage Story character, <laughs> and is just like, look, I know, I, I know it's all about thing. the art with you, man, yeah. but uh, we really think we have something special with this Falcon and the Winter Soldier story. I, you know? I, or it could be Winter Soldier and Falcon, Sebastian. Whatever, whatever you want. <laughs> you know, grammatically, we're open. We're we're into it. Uh, it's. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see. All right. You want to talk about Good Lord Bird and them boys? Yeah. Okay. I don't have a ton to add on Good Lord Bird. I thought it was uh, the second episode aired last night on Showtime. This is a show that we expressed a lot of admiration for last week. And I think we're in it for the not so long haul. I don't don't believe it's that many episodes, right? This was surprising, though. A surprising episode in that the star of the show, or at least the biggest name in the show, is absent from the show until like this episode until like the last four or five minutes um but that being said it had all of the same charms that it had the first week with that feeling anybody could show up at any time uh that characters would remain surprising and inventive and the writing would be top notch and it would it would look great i i think that um yeah i mean like it was i thought it was a very impressive second episode and uh I, i remain a big fan of the show yeah, I was really impressed by the episode for all the reasons you're you're detailing and and wanted to circle back again to just the show's willingness and interest in showing us glimpses of an American history that I was woefully ignorant of. I know we spoke at length about that last week, but just being in Kansas in this completely tenuous razor blade perched state where mm-hmm. slavery isn't legal or illegal and people just seem to be able to do what they want with horrific results is mind-blowing and disturbing in all sorts of ways. The thing that I wanted to say about the second episode, it kind of goes into your point about how Ethan Hawke barely was in it until he made a very memorable appearance at the end. Last week, we talked a little bit about the challenges of showing up in TV and saying you're reinventing the wheel when the wheels are round for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. We, specifically, we were talking about a lot, you know, some of the, the bumps we saw in season four of Fargo. But I want to say it may be premature, but one of the things that I'm really digging about the good Lord Bird is that it is seems completely it seems like it was made in a another country or another planet. Mm-hmm. It does not seem beholden to Hollywood in almost any real way. Part of that is, you know, it's it's a Blumhouse TV production. Jason Blum has a lot of juice. Um, part of it is that Ethan Hawke really shepherded the project from beginning to end, um, not just making sure that he could secure the rights to the book and being in close contact with James McBride, the novelist who who wrote it, but basically co-writing with Mark Richard and yeah, and developing it, yeah, developing it almost entirely. And what we see in the end result isn't just a willingness to be like, well, the main character doesn't have to be here. This I can just be the Trojan. I, I I'm ego free enough that I can be a Trojan horse to get people to watch the Ethan Hawke show and then just be in it as I need to be at like a in it like a force of nature. But the casting is awesome. And the, mm-hmm. it's not just that it's awesome in the sense that uh, everyone is really good because they are. It's not just awesome because Ethan Hawke has an incredible Rolodex when he can just be like, hey, Steve Zahn, want to be, yeah, a, Steve Zahn. Wanna be a, a shitbird for 50 minutes and get blown up with a cannonball. Um, <laughs> I think there are more, you know, celeb pals showing up in the episodes to come. Yeah. Um, it's that all of these really strong supporting parts are played by actors, the bulk of whom I've never seen before. And some of them are pure Broadway or pure theater. But I I have to wonder if some of this is coming from Ethan Hawke and his team's like just East Coast perspective, mm-hmm. where he's like, these are people that I've seen do the work and maybe they're not out there for pilot season 
uh, every every year trying to get parts or whatever. And maybe and because of that, you haven't seen them in you know various Law and Orders. But like Natasha Mark, the actress who played Pi in this episode, yeah, is just just total head turner and head turning performance. Crystal Lee Brown, who has been on you know a bunch of TV shows that you that many people have seen. She was on Mindhunter. She's on um, a whole bunch of other NBC like procedural shows, and she's been daytime stuff. But she was kind of revelatory in the biggest scene of the episode with the preacher, who himself mm-hmm. is a Tony Award winning actor whose work I'm not really that familiar with. He was and not it, in any Tom Stoppard plays that you saw in their original run. Not the one that I've been focusing on for my upcoming podcast, Popping Off on Stop. <laughs> I was which is basically <laughs> I was I was thinking maybe stop Tommy Time. Like like Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. We can keep workshopping it. <laughs> but uh but but just that it feels slightly skewed in its perspective and in the talent pool it's drawing from. And I think that's only a good thing. Right. Um, I am very much in favor of the way that this show feels like a journey rather than a quest. Uh, A lot of the TV that I've watched this year has either been trying to solve a mystery or uh, teach the characters some lesson by going through a certain you know, a series of hardships or steps. And there are definitely hardships involved in Good Lord Bird, but I, it feels far more, um, it feels far more like a collection of short stories about a time and a place and a group of people than it does mm-hmm. about, this is what this person will learn through their experiences or find out how this thing wraps, like it sticks the landing. It, I, I mean, like if you know anything about John Brown, you know how it ends. You also, if you've seen the first scene in this show, you know how it ends. So it's really more about this truly stunning time in the country's history and also playing around with the sanctity of history itself. So I enjoy it. It's, 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 it's so interesting to watch this in parallel with Fargo and, and both shows' relationship to, you know, Fargo's the whole thing about, like, uh, this is a true story. Everything mm-hmm. is true except for the names out of, you know, out of respect for the dead. I know that Fargo is not like a historical document, but it's been it's been interesting. I feel like when I'm watching Fargo, I'm constantly asking these questions about what do these characters want? What is this character's goal? What is this character doing? And with Good Lord Bird, I'm just kind of like just here for the ride, just here to experience this. Can I draw people's attention to one other feature of the show that I think makes it worth watching and is kind of exceptional? And it's the cinematographer of the show. It's a guy named Peter Deming, whose name I'd seen before, but I didn't really connect because the show is gorgeous. And the direction has been amazing. Um, Philadelphia native Kevin Hooks directed episode two. Absolutely beautiful. Some really stunning set pieces. But I want to shout out Peter Deming, who might be the most interesting person in Hollywood. Because... Let me give you a sense of the, the most fascinating CV I think I've ever seen. But particularly, I want to talk about his uh, 2001 into 2002, where he went from... So, in two, okay, 2000, he was the DP on Scream 3. 2001, he was the DP on David Lynch's Mulholland Drive and the Hughes Brothers' From Hell. And then from From, from Hell, he segued directly into Austin Powers and Goldmember. He is the go-to DP <laughs> for David Lynch and Jay Roach, okay? Yeah. It's unreal. This guy, this guy did this entire Twin Peaks The Return, one of the greatest television events of my lifetime for David Lynch just a short time ago. Since then, he's done Now You See Me 2, Capone with Josh Trank, and New Mutants with Josh Boone. (laughs) He is my new hero 
for just putting your head down and doing the work. And sometimes the work is magisterial and era defining. And sometimes it's Josh Trank's Capone, but you do the work. I can't remember where I saw this on Twitter, but there was like a really like astute, very funny point made by somebody in like from Twitter where it was like, if you look at like 99% of cinematographers, IMDb, it'll be like tree of life, and then, you know, some like uh, some other like art movie, like some Villeneuve movie. And then it'll be like the Adam Sandler camp reunion movie. Yeah. <laughs> like these guys are just working. So it's just like they're not like Vilmo Zygmunt it, doing like ground. There, there it's kind of amazing. I mean, everyone in any industry is just you're just working. Right. It's yeah. a job at a certain point. But cinematographers, because it's a business based on relationships, but it's also a business based on kind of slipping from project to project because your name isn't often noticed which isn't great, but it can also let you get away with stuff, right? Because, I mean, I, 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 this guy did Drop Dead Fred. Do you remember that movie in 1991? Yeah. yeah, of course, of course. But after that, he did My Cousin Vinny. So I just feel like his life is incredibly fascinating. We should always pay attention to cinematographers in general because they are more responsible, I think, than people realize for the look of almost anything. And his work on this show is astonishing. But man, I bet this guy's got some stories. So we're going to have Eric Kripke on the show in just a few, so I don't want to belabor the boys' conversation. Um, we talked to Aya Cash a little bit earlier in the year about her her role on the show, and she had alluded to season two setting up the villain for season three. And I have to admit, I did not, of, of all the different you know hypotheticals I played out in my head after she said that, Congressman Newman was not one of the people that I had arrived at. So I was sincerely surprised by that revelation at the end of this episode that she was the person who was going around blowing up people's heads. And uh, anybody who's sort of familiar with various runs of X-Men comics, like this is a really nice mm-hmm. nice turn where like the, the person who's in some sort of state of political power who seems to be overseeing some of this also has mutant capabilities in X-Men, but here it's like you're a soup. Um, I was surprised by that. I think that I want to be a little bit more surprised by this show. I found it to be incredibly satisfying. Mm-hmm. Let me just put it that up front. And I really enjoy the boys and happily can't wait for a season three to come along. But for a show that's as sort of graphic and um, provocative as it is visually and like in terms of like the violence that happens, I almost would rather they go even further. Not necessarily with the blood splatter, but I thought there were a couple of moments in the last few episodes where it really did seem like the Billy character kind of was um, in one of those pivot points as to where you could take him. And ultimately, I feel like they ended in a place where it was like, this is what works. It's this group of people versus this Mm -hmm. group of people. And we have to stick with, you know, Pam and Jim relationship of of mm-hmm. of Starlight and Huey and we like we just we like the guys who are around Billy we like MM we like Kamiko we like you know and ultimately Billy needs to be this Lee Marvin character at the center of this and I without knowing anything about what the comic suggests narrative wise I kind of found myself almost wanting them to kill their darlings just cuz they kill everything else and I was like you know what I kind of feel like it would be cool if this show really like pushed a button and it's definitely a, a very soothing show despite how violent it is. But I, I was curious whether what, what your thoughts were. I agree with everything you're saying and I haven't 
talked to Eric yet, but I, I think I'll try to find a way to bring this up one way or another, which is, you know, the, it, it's very challenging for a show that wants to be provocative and button pushing, but is also built on, as I've said many times, and I'm going to say to Eric again, built on very traditional television making DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, and this is the same thing that happens in comic books in general, not necessarily Garth Ennis, Ennis comics like The Boys, but major IP concerns like the Avengers or whatever, where you want every new storyline to push the envelope as far as it can go, but always be able to reset it because mm -hmm. you got to keep give people what they want. And uh, it's pretty interesting that a property like The Boys, which was created by Garth Ennis and Derek Robertson for an independent publisher precisely to kill all of the darlings that they had both accepted money to work on in the past, has become the IP darling for Amazon that is now yeah. going to spawn multiple franchises and spinoffs so? and needs to keep going. I mean, it, we've, they've already announced one spinoff. Oh, um, from who? For what? The, it's uh, It was announced. It's basically going to be the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters for Young Soups. It's like a uh, high school spinoff. Okay. No characters we've seen yet. Um, so super bad, but with superpowers? Potentially. Yeah. Sure. And there probably will be others to come. I mean, this is a enormously important show to Amazon. I was hoping for an, uh, a series that looked at the origin story for all of Mother's Milk's t-shirts. Well, apparently he gave Huey the number for yeah. his dealer because <laughs> even in hiding, they always have fresh fits. Um, but 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 to your point about about how far they can push it, I mean, that is the, the balancing act for the show going forward. And I think that for as much as a lot of crazy ass shit went down in this season and this season finale. It also was a very, very soft reset at the end of it because suddenly everyone's problems went away and everything's fine until they have to do it all again, right? They built it to a point where Homelander and Butcher are in the same room and for now a slightly different reason, they don't try to kill each other, right? even though it would always be a one-sided uh, killing. right? So I think that that is... In some, in some ways, that could start to feel frustrating to people. In other ways, it is, as you said, it's kind of dependable and enjoyable. And I do think the show is at its most successful when it focuses on the trees and not the forest. Mm -hmm. If you dig too deep under the hood, I'm not entirely sure what it is saying about our corporatist current moment. I'm not entirely sure what Vought is doing. And I, and I, and I say this as a fan of the show. I don't know if I care. I think the success well, yeah. of the show is that I care about, as you said, Huey and Starlight or M.M. getting back together with his family. I am invested in these characters that they've gone to great pains to create. The machinations beyond that are, you know, they keep they keep the plate spinning, but I am interested. Yeah, in and plates. I think that the way that they satirize um, the powerful's usage of mass media and specifically social media in this season is accurate. But to go back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the pod is uh, a little on the nose right now, you know? And, it, and, and, and it, it was sort of like, I don't need this satirized here. I can see it happening in real time. You know, well, this isn't a hypothetical. And I'll take it a step further, and I, I hope to bring this up with, with Eric as well, which is maybe this is a, a, you know, a, a withering indictment of myself, but I struggle with the kind of, you know, shrug emoji, don't trust anyone nihilism that is, mm -hmm. is central to Garth Ennis's comics and kind of the show so far when we live in a world where I actually need someone like AOC not to be a head-exploding supervillain. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, that is a bold and wild choice, but I also kind of want 
good people in the world. And I know this isn't the world, it's a TV show, but it's something that was, that was tougher to swallow for contextual reasons rather than for story reasons. Um, but speaking yeah. of story reasons, I got to say, once again, I was really impressed by the way they just did s complicated things and made them look relatively easy. Like A-Train's journey over the course of the season, keeping him in play, yeah. even though he was more marginalized than he was in the previous season. But at the end, he has a very important moment that you know allows them to accomplish things they need to accomplish and push the story forward, et cetera, et cetera. I was... Uh... I was kind of hoping that Goran Visnich was gonna was gonna be the next big bat. Me too. I yeah. mean, that is if we're talking about why the show is a little bit like Walking Dead and like they can just do anything to anyone at any time. I mean, it's a pretty big flex to be like we have a legitimate TV star on the season and we're slow walking him into the frame and then we blow him up. Well, you know what? The Walking Dead comparison is a good one because you know I I we obviously have checked out on that show a while ago. Every once in a while, I'll dip back in just to see what it looks like and what it feels like. But the conversion of that show into lifeblood giving franchise is fully complete. And if you ever had any kind of curiosity about, oh, I wonder what's going to happen to this character or that character, they've just come out and said, well, these two characters the Norman Reedus, Carol and, yep. and Daryl are never going anywhere. You know, like they are, they are the, the sort of the, the fast and the furious version of this show and they are going to live forever and they are going to yep. be the thing that we're going to do a spinoff on. I wonder whether or not that, like some of that same logic applies to the boys, whether you get, it's impossible to do anything to well, Huey. It's impossible to do anything to. That's, that's ultimately my question that I'm, that I'm going to put to Eric, which is, at the end of the day, is The Boys a show about a world in which there's a corporation like Vaude and Compound V exists and superheroes are just part of the landscape? Or is it a show about these characters and mm -hmm. these people in mm -hmm. particular? Which one do you prefer? I think that I'd rather it be, if I'm being honest, I think I'd rather it be about these, these characters because they've done a lot of work giving life to them. Um, mm -hmm. But that does put a clock, I think, on this iteration of the show. And I don't know who's comfortable operating within that. You know what I mean? Like Amazon, sure. this isn't exactly like when Damon and Carlton went to ABC and they were like, look, you got to let us end this thing. Nobody yeah, right. wants the boys to end. And Eric Kripke is involved in the spinoff. And I'm sure they're talking about other possibilities. But are they saying this is a open-ended show where we are going to cycle out protagonists after a certain amount of time when their stories are done? Or are they saying this is Butcher and Huey show and it's going to, because of that, it's going to last five seasons and we're going to be stretched to the breaking point to come up with ways, reasons for Homelander not to kill them both. Sure. Right. That's a really good point. Well, we, uh, sounds like we have a lot of questions for Eric, so I will let you get to that. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, Andy's interview with Eric Kripke. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Eric, really, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been such a pleasure watching the show this season, and congratulations on the finale. Which, oh, thank you. I, I was searching for a you know a not tired uh, blue people's minds joke, but I feel like we're not. We're not doing, <laughs> there's we're not, no good. There's no good mind blowing blue people's minds. It, there's just it's better to just avoid it entirely. Okay, and I will. I will take the note and I will move yeah, on. Yeah, you should. Um, so I want to start. Uh, I have a bunch of questions for you, both about the finale itself, but also just about your process with the show uh, and making a show like this in times like these. Mm-hmm. But I kind of, speaking of times like these, I wanted to start by quoting a line from the finale to you. Um, maybe not the one you're expecting, but it's it's Queen Maeve says, nothing changes, nothing ever changes or gets better, and I'm tired. And I just want to thank you for inadvertently summing up the year 2020 for <laughs> an entire generation of viewers. Believe me, I know. Yeah, no, I mean, we were just sort of like this, the the hopelessness in the sense of lack of systemic change is something that she voices, Uh, but she also gets the wherewithal to keep up the fight, and that's the important thing. That's true, but it is, we are noticing more and more, I guess, these little moments that predate our current circumstance, but are actually evidence that maybe we've always been in a certain the circumstance has been with us, even if the specifics haven't? Yeah, I think in general, people have short memories, especially for a year as traumatic as this one. And um, every issue that the show is talking about that feels like this second current, we're, all, we're just the issues that were going on in the news when we were writing the show in you know 2018, uh, 2019. You know, there was still, you know, African-American men getting pulled over by cops and it ending tragically. There was, you know, the travel ban and and we were supposed to be scared of this caravan from Mexico. And there was a lot of, you know, alt-right white nationalism and xenophobia. And um, I mean, there still there still is because we're still living in the world's dumbest dystopia. Uh, so yeah, so they all, they they were all issues at the time that we wrote the show. I want to come back to this idea of making a show like this in the world's dumbest dystopia, which couldn't agree with you more. Um, but I, but just in in terms of the other moments in the finale that stuck with me more than any other, particularly in, in feeling so prescient, the the idea of leaving the show for however long this hiatus will be forced to last, with the image of a incredibly powerful man jerking off on all of us dummies below. That's that stuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. That was actually uh that was the one scene Amazon made me cut in season one. Uh we really? shot it in season one. And uh 
you know, we weren't on the air yet. And while they in general gave me great latitude, for some reason, that was the one that was like the bridge too far for them. Uh, it was originally supposed to air in episode two. I mean, we shot it early wow. and of season one. And so then uh, cut to us making, and I always loved the scene. And I was like, oh, I can't believe we cut that brilliant piece of work. And and, and Anthony is so good in it. And uh, It is some of his best physical acting that I've seen. I loved him on Banshee. Well, just, the, the way that like, you can't decide if he's crying or having an orgasm is just to me, just amazing. And, um, so cut to, you know, uh, they gave me a editor's or, uh, they were giving me notes on a cut of episode eight and, um, and we had a different final moment for Homelander and they were like, well, it's a little ambiguous and, you know, it doesn't really hit you. Can we, you know, can we end with something that really hits you? And I'm like, I got just the thing. And, I, like, I didn't tell them. I just said I did the note, and I sent them back the cut yeah. that scene back in. I got to say it was perfect because he's been uncharacteristically defeated by the previous moments, and everything that he's sacrificed a lot to, uh, you know, to enact or entrench in the system or in the, the world or in the country seems to have fallen away. And so what does he have at the end of it? Well, he just has power, and that you know, actually I, makes him feel more dangerous for season three. Yeah, I mean, as Anthony often says and he's right like he's the weakest character in the show like mm -hmm. he's the most pathetic and needy and and obviously his physical strength is what makes him so dangerous but um from a character standpoint he's he's quite quite weak so i i'm going to do a couple of quick hits of just where we left in the finale before i can get into some of the bigger uh dumb dystopia questions i have for you sure. um was pleased to see uh my old friend, our friend of the podcast, Aya Cash's character, Stormfront, uh, get her just desserts, but yeah. didn't see her die. Just saw her wax poetic about apples, which... No, she's not dead, man. She's not dead. We didn't kill her. Um, there's fates worse than death for, um, for people who really believe in Aryan purity, and that is to be like a stumpy little Nazi who has to face you know, a very long time in that state because she ages so slowly. It felt like it was a fate worse than death for her. So uh, she ain't dead. We're going to, you know, we may or may not see her pop up a little bit in uh, season three. I respect owning the ambiguity. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, the When we last see Ryan, our Homelander Jr., um, it appears like he is going to be... Uh, with Butcher, like as his ward of some kind, but then he is ferried away to parts unknown. Are, are we meant to know that he's being placed in some sort of protective care by Vought, by Mallory? Uh, Mallory and the CIA, uh, who are you know adversarial to Vought, have custody of the kid and 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 will put him in a reasonably healthy situation that we'll actually see in season three. And Butcher will check in on him regularly. Um, so, you know, until things go to shit in season three, which of course they will, um, right. for the moment he's in a stable environment. Great. Cause he seems nothing bad's happened to him recently. No, no, no. He's he seems so fine. Very it's well adjusted. So fine. You know, <laughs> okay, good. that kind of power, it's, he's, it's how, what could possibly go wrong? A, a moment like Frenchie and Kimiko talking about dancing at the end, um, in terms of your own process as a writer and with your room, just 
curious where, how important moments like that are for you over the arc of a, a long season like this, where obviously you're building in all this emotional backstory to Kimiko and she goes through her own traumas and small <laughs> wins and victories. And we obviously deal with Frenchie's past as well. And then they actually get a light moment in a show that rarely gives us them. Yeah, I, you know, I, one, I think they're very important. Um, but two, um, it's funny because, you know, obviously I, I, I read a lot of the press on the show and, and they talk about it's like deep cynicism and nihilism. And clearly there's something wrong with me because I actually think I'm making a hopeful show. <laughs> like no one seems to get it but me. Uh but by the same respect, like I thought Garth Ennis's comic, which people talk about as like this nihilistic mm -hmm. uh, piece, like I thought that was hopeful. Um, and I told him so. And, and he's like, I know, nobody gets it. So because for me, it's like, look, it's, it's, it's just, I think it speaks to what people are trained to view as victories in media, period, which is part of what the show is speaking out against, which is you're expected to have some big grand movement and some hero doing something big and heroic that's inspiring and changes everything. And that's just not how heroism really works. And in fact, that's the lie that superhero media tells us, which makes us more receptive to strong men and people who say, I'm the only one who can save you. Like it's, Fun is escapism, but it has a danger because it's not real. Real heroism is going to somebody and saying, hey, you look like you need a moment, like, let's go dance. Mm -hmm. or, or deciding after you've been a selfish prick forever that, like, you're going to let your wife, you know, have her moment and, and make an unselfish choice. And so we actually very intentionally sprinkle in these like little moments of humanity that might not be the sexiest, mm -hmm. but they're actually where for me, the actual hope in the world is because um, no one's coming to save us. We have to save ourselves and we're going to save ourselves by stumbling, confused and overwhelmed through these tiny little moments as we look for family. And, um, and to me, that's what the show's about. Uh, yeah. Well, I I love that answer, and that that actually dovetails pretty nicely with with something that I've keep coming back to in my conversation about the show, which is I found one of the most interesting conflicts in it over the two seasons. Conflicts, kind of a grandiose word. That's not what I mean. Tensions, maybe. Let's say, mm -hmm. is between the more out there elements that obviously get a lot of attention. The head exploding that I promised you I wouldn't bring up again, but here we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what I've come to really appreciate in terms of not just quieter moments of, uh, in, to use your term, you know, real heroism, or let's just say more emotional um, connection, mm -hmm. but also very dedicated, and I don't say this pejoratively, old-fashioned storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'd love if you could help me articulate this more, because I keep using the phrase old-fashioned. I don't mean it because it sounds judgmental. But what I mean is the reason I think that this show earns its moments of extreme gore uh, is because we have these moments like the road trip with Huey and Starlight and M.M. Right. or Butcher with his various members of his family at different points. And in particularly like the thing with the road trip, I was just I was just so taken by that episode because taking two characters that we want, even if they happen to have chips in them or whatever, or being monitored and just yeah. putting them on the road for a minute. I mean, that again, I say this with great love and respect. That's TV 101. And it right. works yeah. for a reason because we got yeah. to go on the ride with them. So then later when they are covered in gore and bits of brain and sick, we are still on their side. Yeah. 
Uh, no, I, I mean, I think, look, I think that's very intentional. I mean, part of it comes down to just my sensibility and, you know, uh, the era. It's funny that I'm old enough now to talk about the era with which I was trained to be a writer. Well, yeah. Was the era of, you know, we were kind of closing in towards the tail end of Buffy and X-Files um, you know, streaming was a glimmer in everybody's eyes. And um, I was trained that every episode needed to be a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also a structuralist. Like if I had any type of writing style, I really, like every writer has a thing that they love. And like, I, I really love structure. I love the clock making mm-hmm. of it. And so we spend an incredible amount of time in our room saying like, okay, what is the story of this one? Mm-hmm. You know, who are they in the beginning? How do they change in the middle? And where do they land at the end? Um, that is its own story that then the next episode has to build on it, um, which is probably where you get the old fashioned or old school feeling because we're working to move these characters forward. And, and I would say in any episode break, I would say easily the characters get 80% of the conversation and, and then plot and exploding heads get, you know, a combined 20%. Um, so, you know, I mean, I've used this expression before uh, and it's just, again, it kind of comes down to my sensibility, which is um, I find that if you have a very wholesome Christmas tree, people, and people feel the stability of it, you can hang the most perverted weird ornaments all over it because they know that they're in confident hands. It's Uh, absolutely true. And I think the same holds true for casting, you know, things that may be not the most glamorous part of the job, but when you get a group of talented people like you've gathered, so many of whom are just appealing, which I know isn't always the first word that you want to say when you describe someone's abilities, but, but these are these are people worth going on the journey with, especially if the journey is going to be this gnarly. Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, I. I you know. Again, it's. Uh, it, it's funny that it's like when I was when I was coming up, the thing you went for most was charisma. Like that was the single biggest thing. And and by the way, there's a important correction of different types of character actors and skill and you know, would Brian Cranston have gotten Breaking Bad in that era? And so, you know, there are a lot of things that needed to change. But one thing I always took away from, you know, my early experiences and also watching what worked, like, you know, I generally found that, you know, when the actor, even if they're not playing an intelligent character, when the actor just, you know, transmits intelligence, the show works. You know, when I think of every single thing I've seen that I like, I look at those actors, I'm like, oh, they seem like they're smart people. Yeah. And it, I think it speaks to, and, and again, if I'm totally off base on this, um, please tell me I'm right to make it seem like I've made a great <laughs> point sure. on the podcast. But I think when actors bring a certain spark to any material, it creates more opportunity in the minds of the writers, which creates this, you know, a nicely symbiotic relationship. And, and I, I don't know what your intention was for the character of Ashley, for example, but it felt like one of those times where you're like, oh, she's great. Okay, yeah. here we yeah. go. And, and, and that always is apparent on the screen, if you, even if you don't know the backstory. 
Yeah, no, it's one of the huge advantages of television, which is, you know, things can evolve in real time as you're learning things about your production and about your actors. And um, I, I like I liken it, it's like a tailoring process. You know, you the, the pilot is always the most awkward fit between actor and, and script yep. because you just, they're coming in cold. And, and from the beginning, um, it's really important as a, as a writing producer, um, whether it's your episode or not, is like watch every minute of dailies and just see, especially that first season, like you have to see what they're good at and where they're comfortable and when they are murdering it. You also have to see when you're like, oh, well, yeah, no, that, that's not as comfortable for them. And you start writing towards their strengths. And so, you know, Colby as Ashley, that's a perfect example. It, it was generally written to be like, you know, Lisa Shue's assistant, mm -hmm. you know, so she could have a character to talk to. Like mm -hmm. generally a functional, you know, everyone has those characters. It's the functional character that you have like a couple scenes with. And I remember uh, uh, when we were looking at the casting, Dan Trachtenberg, the director of the episode, um, I think you guys know, um, I think, uh, Dan, when Colby came up on the, on the his exact words were like, we really need to cast her because you're going to want to write for her. You're going to want to write big. This character is going to be a much bigger character than we're, we've been originally thinking. Um, and he was totally right. And she's just so funny and smart and hilarious that, you know, the writers just love writing for her. I love hearing that. And I, I guess I, for people who don't know your full CV, you've made a lot of TV. and. Yeah. Um, arguably too much arguably too much i didn't say it but you know but, <laughs> but 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 you created supernatural which though you stepped away day to day from day to day duties on is currently in its 15th and final season made the show revolution made a show timeless which rip that deserved a much longer run but the one of the things that those shows have in common is that they were not pitched at this more adult audience and so i wonder how much uh I, I, it's sort of a, a chicken or egg question, I guess. I wonder how much of the appeal of this project was, oh, now look what I get to do, since I've not been able to do these things before, versus in keeping with the, the conversation we've been having, I can Trojan horse some of these values that that you know that worked for me and have worked mm -hmm. for generations of making quality TV that people enjoyed into yeah. this next generation of of streaming yeah. or whatever we're doing. I mean, I, I don't know if it was, a, I, that second one, I don't know if it was totally conscious about, except from just, I really am mildly annoyed by this notion that streaming can just be like one long movie or that when people say, uh, hang in there by episode five, it really starts moving. And I'm like, like literally my job description is I'm an entertainer. Yes. <laughs> like it's my job to entertain. And, and I really reject the notion that it can be this slow, ponderous, up its own ass thing. Like you got to, like we're carnies and I, and, and it's annoying to me. Yes, of course, artists and everything and blah. But like, I, I, I think we're primarily craftsmen and, and we have an obligation you know, of, of, of to do that stuff that like carnies do, the great entertainers do. 
you know, and that is like you hook them early, you keep them engaged, and then you can slip in whatever message you want to slip in. Um, I, I totally agree. I mean, I feel like the covenant of television is that we are broadcasting into your homes on your couch. So it's an intimate medium. And here we are with you. And what we owe you is to be entertained. And if you accept right. that, then, as you said, with your Christmas tree analogy, look what we can hang on it. Like, look what else we can reach into your, your living room and disturb you with. But you got you got to entertain. And, yeah. and that's the thing about the boys. I mean, it's it's fun to watch the show. And that's not a small thing. Yeah, no, especially for a show that can be as um, heavy um, as it can be. You know, we work hard to make the messages of the show, you know, acidic and angry because I think we're angry (laughs) about the world. Uh, But we're also very, very conscious that it needs to feel fun. Um, and, and so I think it's been, I've been really pleased with the results because I think, you know, like kids, uh, uh, hopefully kids old enough to handle this type of material, but like teenagers, let's say, uh, uh, I think are, you know, just from just anecdotally reading some responses on social media, like questioning a few things they wouldn't have questioned before, but it kind of like goes down in this kind of fun, fast, action-packed package. Um, so that's been really, you know, that's been really gratifying. Like now they know what cuck porn is, for example. <laughs> for instance. Yeah. For instance, now they know what cuck porn is. It's just uh, you're, you're doing the Lord's work. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, st- but sticking with this, this idea of it kind of being a little bit old and a little bit new, I'm curious about how you feel about what's to come. Because I think that the boys is set up now. I mean, it's obviously it's successful, which is great. Um, and there's a lot of story left with these characters. There was a, there are a lot of comic book issues to to mine from. Should you choose to do it, but you know, streaming TV is, has increasingly become more angled towards resolution. Here's this one story that we're telling from beginning, middle to end. But you know, 15 seasons of Supernatural under your belt. I mean. This could go on for a while. So I, I guess I wonder, as you're planning things going forward, in your mind, is The Boys a show about a superhero-powered universe with a very cynical corporate presence in Vought? Or is it specifically a show about Butcher and Huey and Homelander and what happens to them? Um, well, you know, I do want The Boys... I mean, well, I'll, re- I'll start over. I am smart enough at this point to not try to put a number on how many seasons a show could go because I very often said Supernatural should only go five seasons. Um, but, and, t- but, but times three. <laughs> right, exactly. I forgot to do that. Ex- there's the a little cube. exponential, yeah. Yeah, I, did, I didn't do the cube. And so, uh, you know, I, I know now not to you know, step on my own dick uh, for that. That said, you know, I think, you know, Amazon provides a, a pretty good amount of creative latitude and um you know five on this one feels like a good round number because it takes place in a really expansive universe but it is about you know butcher and huey and the boys now hilariously for as much as we made fun of it like we really are starting to bring this idea of the vaught cinematic universe yeah do life like there is going to be a VCU and um, you know Craig Rosenberg, who is one of my executive producers and brought you such hits as Dolphin Through the Windshield and 
whale impalement. He's, for instance, writing the spinoff, and it takes place completely within that universe, and it's just a wildly different show because it's in a completely different setting. And that, to me, feels like more of what the future of this Mm -hmm. universe will be like, like rather than like squeezing every drop of blood uh, from that one story, I would rather it end in a classy leave them wanting more way and that if and that we keep telling more stories in different places in that universe and i think that makes sense too because the the unique problem that your show has is how many times can homelander and butcher be in the same room where two of them leave the room i mean i imagine that takes up a lot of your mind and ingenuity in the writer's room too because you want these two you want these two the protagonist and antagonist of the show together and yet there's an imbalance there Yes, exactly right. And yeah, you you have to play the game all the time of like, why doesn't he just kill him? And, you know, so you tend to, I mean, one lesson I learned a long time ago was um, you limit the amount of time greatly that your main antagonist and your main protagonist are together um, because it's diminishing returns every time you put them together. As you plan for the future, I mean, the show is renewed for a second and third season, so this is not, no spoiler to say that there's a future uh, to come. I'm curious how your own personal uh, compass about how you handle real-life issues, real-life themes, how you incorporate them has perhaps been affected by the year. Because I, I notice, and I think it's a personal thing for everyone watching the show, there were moments watching the season when you know I found it to be an escape in the best possible way. And there were moments like the penultimate episode where I struggled both because of the the violence, but also because of the the trauma involving the child. Um, yeah. You know, that, that was a harder watch for me. And then I realized at the end of the finale, uh, I don't know what this says about me, and maybe I should be giving my money to the Vought Cinematic Universe, like the rest <laughs> of the sheeple, but like, it was hard for me for AOC to be a villain. I realized uh, that I actually <laughs> need heroes you know what i mean right, in my exactly. own life and even yeah. though this you, even though you've never pretended that you are actually doing the real world that felt suddenly like oh is this a bridge too far right you know it's a really interesting question and i wrestled with that one actually because i think anyone who watches the show i think it's politics are reasonably clear and we had long conversations in the room about like you know, what are we saying here? Um, And are we inadvertently saying something about AOC that, you know, that we don't mean to say because I'm a huge AOC supporter. And and again, I think anyone who watches the show could see that I wear my politics on my sleeve. Um, But here's why you never trust a writer because the, the necessity of pulling off a magic trick turned out to be more important to us, <laughs> you know, yeah. at the end of the day, we, we, at the end of the day, it's our job to surprise and twist. And, and there's nothing that makes us rub our hands together more gleefully than, than to create a twist that we know nobody's going to see coming. And, and so, you know, I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say that, like, I think we talked ourselves into it by saying like, look, it's not AOC. It's a, it's her own character and she's a person. And, you know, I mean, one thing I will say is I think we do a pretty good job in season three as we start to unpack, you know, who Newman is and where mm-hmm. she goes. Like, uh, uh, and now that we know this about her, I think she starts to deviate pretty radically from, 
who we know AOC to be. Um, was the, I, I got to ask, was the actress aware of what was going on until the finale? Did you tell her in that uh, episode? It's so funny in, in the dumbest possible way. She did not know, but I thought I told her. <laughs> like, I wasn't <laughs> trying to keep it a big secret. She, she read, she got the script. Uh, uh, Claudia, uh, who, you know, was one of my actors on Timeless, and, you know, I love dearly. Uh, and she got the script and she emailed me and she's like, what the fuck? I'm the superhero. And, and I think my response was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Did I not tell you? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I think she, but I think it worked because obviously she played it very, very innocent. Um, yeah, she had no idea uh, who she really was. And so can you just give people, uh, and I'll let you go after this, but um, where where are things? I, I imagine you've season three probably was written at this point, but do you have a sense of when you can return to production? Um, we, what is the timetable? Yeah, right before I came to you uh, in our strange, slightly unwieldy virtual Zoom writer's room, um, we are in the middle of breaking the season three finale. I've seen scripts through seven the goal is to shoot early 21 mm -hmm. and uh, we'll see. I mean, right now, I mean, the thing I think we just do with the show is um, we write about what is happening right now um, around us and what enrages us and what we find ridiculous and frustrating. And, and so though we're not writing a COVID season, um, because hilariously, we reached a point where, like, that was too absurd and extreme and big for our fucking superhero show. It was just too big to get our heads around. So while we're not writing a COVID season, I think we're I think COVID lives metaphorically through an incredible amount of what we're doing, as well as you know this administration's response to it, and 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 this unbelievable drive to put ego in front of public safety, you know, like all of those things really rear their heads uh, in season three. So um, it'll be interesting because if, you know, if God willing, he isn't reelected, you know, maybe by the time this thing airs, it'll, it'll be a, a, a memory of a, of a strange and nightmarish time. We'll be able to laugh again. No, but yeah, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying so much because I think what one of the things that's interesting about this nightmare, um, that seems a little trite, but the fact that we are essentially collectively as a planet facing a villain that you cannot outmuscle, that you cannot bluff past, yeah. and it just finds its way in no matter what. And that feels like particularly fertile territory for a show like yours that already has such a... Uh, skeptical view of traditional models of power. Yeah, no, that that's right. And the way so many politicians worry more about how it looks than how it's going, um, you know. So there's there's a lot of sort of issues of of that of of you know your your points and how you're polling and how it looks. Mm -hmm becomes the primary driver of the decisions you're making that are causing the deaths of thousands and thousands of people. Um, and just how insane that is. I mean, it was, the world obviously was crazy two years ago. This year, like, it's just on fucking fire. And um, so it's, it's 
weirdly the best time in all of history to make this particular show, um, which I think is why I feel a responsibility to attack these issues as fearlessly as I can, because there's just so few shows that are lined up conceptually to be able to get into these issues. And, and so I, I always say like, we have to charge into it as hard as we can, because what, what others, if not us, who? Well, I, I appreciate that aspect of the show. The desire to run headfirst into the burning building uh, creatively, I think is what makes it particularly special and commendable. Uh, and all I'll ask, uh, I'll, and I'll, I'll leave you on this, is that if there's room, and I know with eight episodes, there's really not much real estate, but maybe in the expanded universe, could we get a glimpse of M.M. and Huey's black market t-shirt dealer who provides them with immaculate, <laughs> immaculate fits, even right? in Amazing. hiding? Amazing. Right. They really know they make them fit. They're streamlined. They're all they always say something interesting. It's yeah. incredible. It's it's crisp. I mean, there has to be a soup who has that ability. I think it's just yeah. that that idea is free. I just it's just something I'm interested in. Oh, thank you. I will consider it. Congratulations to you and the whole team on a season two. And thank you again for taking the time to talk with me about it. Oh, no, thanks, man. This was really fun. Appreciate it.